Yo, before we get into this podcast, I want to ask for a huge favor from you. And that is if you have or you are getting value from this podcast, if you were to leave us a review or subscribe, it would mean the world. And quite frankly, selfishly, it's because I want to, we want to continue sharing these conversations, this medicine with the world. And when you leave a review, when you subscribe, it's a vote. And we would love to have your vote. Nonetheless, thank you so much and enjoy. So after I was anorexic in college, I had years of binge eating problems. And what I experienced was that there was this space between the payoff leaving and then retraining my physical body to stop. So there, at first, like for a while, binging was like, oh my God, I felt terrible, but I got this emotional high off of it, right? There was a payoff and it was guilt, but it was a payoff. Then the payoff was gone, but it was like my body still tried to go through the motions. I would go to the store, mm-hmm. I'd buy a bunch of food, and then I would get home and I'd be like, or I'd be like walking around the grocery store and I would just be like, I drove here to like buy shit, but yeah, I don't want any of it. And I would just leave. And I realized it's because I had a, a physical neural network for the habit. My body remembered how to ride that bike, but the, the emotional payoff was gone. So usually you work on getting rid of the emotional payoff first. This is one way you can do it. And then second, when you're in that place of level-headedness and awareness, you just like train your physical body out of the habit. It's kind of like a two-step process. So you might notice that you physically still go for those old habits, but there'll be a period of time where you'll continue engaging in them out of habit, but they'll cease to be satisfying in the same way. And that's when you just decide to stop. Megan Robitaille is a trauma-informed fitness, wellness, and life coach who really specializes in helping us to understand in a digestible way, how do the mind and the body work together? And in this podcast, we get to dive deep into bridging the gap between science and spirituality, understanding our own physiology, especially as it relates to trauma and emotions, and how to break those loops, those patterns of behavior that we know are no longer serving us so we can live a good-ass life. Hope you enjoy, and we will see you on the other side. That was a really magical way to start this conversation because as soon as I finished my breath, I heard birds chirping in your background. It was just magical. I felt like I was with you in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on my rooftop over here in Oaxaca, Mexico, and there are birds chirping. It's wonderful. Oaxaca, Mexico. <laughs> well, first of all, before we fully dive in, welcome to the call, Megan. It's a pleasure to have you from Oaxaca, Mexico. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to dive into a lot of things today. It's going to be really fun, but I actually just want to speak to the thing that you just brought up, which is that you are in Oaxaca, Mexico. And within, I think it's been less than a month, you were full-time living in, uh, was it Austin? Were you in Austin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And that's a pretty tra- pretty big transition. I know that when we first started having our conversations, you were you were up in Austin doing your thing, but then there was like this call. We'd had multiple conversations back and forth. You're like, "This is this call. I want to I want to go travel." And 
you made some pretty big life changes. You like sold a lot of your shit or maybe put some of it in storage and went to Oaxaca, (laughs) Mexico. Like what is that journey? Why, why did it happen? And what got you to where you are now where we're having Mm -hmm. this conversation? Yeah. So, well, I've wanted to, I mean, I've traveled quite a bit, but I've never been like full-time nomadic Mm -hmm. and I've always wanted to do that, but I've had for one reason or another too much like fear of jumping in and losing control. And so the reason that the timing is now probably we'll touch in more detail on, you know, during this conversation. Um, I think, I think it's been a product of quote, like doing the work or whatever you want to call it. But uh, I had a lot of things kind of like come to the surface over the last six months and around February time, it became like physically, not just mentally, but my body started to check in and say, Hey, like, this is unbearable. Like you need to go and do what you, what you want to do. And so, yeah, it felt like this, this call. Um, so I actually struggled with some like unexpected medical and emotional and serious anxiety issues, like, uh, back in February, kind of January into February, mm-hmm. um, kind of started like it felt like opening some old loops, even from childhood and different parts of my life. And I think in the context of this whole conversation, I can continue explaining the story. But, um, but yeah, like mid-February for about six weeks, I had the worst insomnia that I've, like, I hadn't talked to anyone who even knew insomnia who had had it that badly, like several days in a row watching the sun come up. Like, I don't mean like, oh, I couldn't fall asleep for a few hours. I mean, I didn't sleep at all. And, uh, I had been here before kind of synchronistically. And in the midst of all of that, you sort of realize there's all these bits of control in your life that you're hanging on to for one reason or another. And when you have quote, one problem or one thing to be anxious about, once you resolve that, it's really quickly that another one steps in. And many times you're like, Oh man, I wish I had the old one because the new one, it puts into perspective, the old one. And so I think one of the biggest perspective builders you could possibly experience is is health your body when your body isn't working the way that you need it to work for you to even live your life on a daily on a daily basis like the way that you want well what the fuck is the point of having all this fear about keeping control in all these areas because officially now everything's out of your control like nothing matters anymore without your health and so putting that into perspective it felt all of a sudden like I got super restless restless, and like there wasn't time to lose. And it did feel intuitively like my body was like, you need to do this now. So much to the dismay of my family and some of my close friends who are like, this is such an impulsive decision when, you know, realistically, I've been building the courage to do this for three years. So I kept telling myself, this is not impulsive. You're not trying to escape yourself. Like, you know, you bring yourself with you everywhere you go. And this is going to open a lot of old scabs, but that's what you want. Like you want to resolve things that you aren't facing in this comfortable life that you've built. Um, so keep changing your environment. So, yeah, I mean, I, I basically like, I made that decision in like 3am one night. I was like, I'm gonna do it. I found a sublease for my place. I sold my car. I put stuff in storage. I booked it one way and I've been here for about five weeks now. And, uh, I'm in Puerto Escondido. I love it here, but I'm going to probably travel around a lot of other places too. And just honestly don't have really much of a plan. I have like a plan a few weeks in advance and that's really it. So (laughs) yeah. And it's already opened up a lot of 
things for me and none of them are a surprise, right? They're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I'm facing this thing Mm -hmm. where like deep down, you know, this is something that you haven't faced and that, you know, the physical surroundings are going to find some way to, to, you know, put it right in front of your face and make it bigger until you deal with it. And so I think I've been, I've been pondering this concept of travel being one of the fastest feedback mechanisms that you could possibly have for that mirror effect, because you're constantly changing location. You're constantly meeting new people. There's very little consistency in your daily life. So because of all of this, like accelerated influx of new energy, right? You have a much quicker reflection of like, well, what's the energy I'm putting out if this is what's coming back to me? Um, mm-hmm. And it's really cool because, you know, I can feel it immediately when my energy is in a certain state. I meet a certain pers- type of person or I meet another type of person or something happens or something, you know, like I have some kind of like conflict I have to resolve. And I can see how the more I surrender and stay in a state of like positive expectancy and just kind of being present, the more the experiences that drop in magically are like really incredible ones. And the more I try to hang on control, which was not the point of this trip, the Mm -hmm. more I'm given a reason, more I'm given a reason to keep doing that, which is why it's a cycle. You try to control, you're given all this shit that's out of your control and it feels uncomfortable. So you keep trying to control, you know, it's, there's so much I can possibly (laughs) talk about. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of in that that state. So I'm I'm curious if you find that there's a... So you were in Austin. You were living that life. You were, Mm -hmm. I would imagine, to some degree, seeing a lot of the same people and a lot of the same environments, working with the clients that you have. There's a... there's consistency. There's consistency in, in yes. everything I would imagine from like when you wake up and where you wake up to when you go to sleep and where you go to bed, the people and conversations you're having in some way can kind of become like almost mundane and monotonous for the brain, which naturally we are living as a function of our habits, what we tend towards in that mm-hmm. moment. And I'm curious if you found that yes. even, so you made a point about you left this environment, you went to a new environment and that travel has been a a catalyst in really having to almost like face yourself because there's immediate feedback loops and you don't have so much totally. the anchor that you had say in, in Austin and even now you're in this space but you're projecting going somewhere new and I don't have a fully figured out like I might you know I might plan out a couple of weeks in advance but like we'll see what happens when we get to that point do you find that some of the habits behaviors and tendencies that you had that maybe weren't serving to you in Austin came with you or that it's a little bit easier to distinguish them? Like, how does that, how does that show up? Yeah. Wow. So my brain just went in like 360 degrees. There's like so many different little like philosophies and ways I could take this conversation, but I try to like focus it. I love travel because I think we do, and this is like mainly unconscious, right? But as humans, like we're always searching for some level of self-identity. I mean, and this is like, I study a lot of brain science, evolution, instinct. So if we, if like communal environments help us survive, like we survive in numbers, like penguins sort of, like we like to create community. Uh, So because of that, like the most dangerous thing ever is to be rejected from Mm. the community. So we're always searching for some kind of self-identity that's going to be acceptable to the rest of the group, right? This is instinct. And of course we have all this, oh, be yourself, da, 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 da. But on some level, like seeking acceptance and seeking validation is a natural part of our existence that we we can't quite completely 
get rid of that as much as we would say we want to, right? It's like why the ego exists. But I do think like kind of because of this, um, and this kind of ties closely into another topic, really broad scope that I like to talk about, which is in terms of human brain evolution, the fight, so to speak, between our intention and our survival instinct, which is why we, most of us have certain habits that are safe, certain things that we want, certain difficulties getting shit done. But for the most part, you start to notice that you define unconsciously who you are, yourself, your identity, uh, relative to the people and things around you. It's not conscious. It's not on purpose, but it does happen. And so I think we've all experienced that because of this, once the people around us, the places around us, once there is a certain perspective on who we are, even if we want to change what that definition is, it becomes really hard to do it because number one, it's hard to change the opinion of those people around you. They mm-hmm. already have this, like, you know, when you try to explain to your family or a friend, Hey, like you have this version of me five years ago in your head and that's not who I am anymore. And it's like one of the most frustrating things, but even beyond that, even beyond the opinion of others, once you're around the same groups of people, once you're around the same environments, you unconsciously start to act like that old definition of yourself as well, whether you want to or not. So say even if you go back to your hometown and you see high school friends, you start to like remember this old version of yourself and maybe you even start to engage in old habits that are anchored to mm-hmm. that location. So it becomes difficult. I thought to I shook these yourself. away. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it becomes difficult, you know, even to change yourself because of that process. Whereas I think travel is one of the places, number one, to to grow the most, but also to to learn the most. Like, who am I? Because if my environment is always changing, if the people around me are always changing, if there is no consistency and the only consistency is me, then what is that? Like, I get to see clearly what is that? What is what is me? What is self? Um, and I think you do start to notice, like, what are the pieces you've brought with you? Like one thing that I was clear with myself early on about was, okay, I know I'm dealing with my own shit. I've been working in coaching with trauma and all this, but I've been, you know, doing my own stuff as well. And really diving deep and stirring the pot is a huge part of the reason I'm here. And a huge part of the reason that I've struggled through things in the last year, but it was like the kind of Mm. struggle I needed, right? I was clear with myself early on, like, Meg, you bring yourself everywhere you go. (laughs) You go with you. Even if there's a tiny bit of you. Yeah. Even if there's like the tiniest bit of you that's unconsciously trying to escape yourself, you're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Like you're going to bring all of the same problems that you had there here. And I've experienced that. In fact, they were, they've been, they've been magnified, right? Because I've gotten to see like most of our bad habits, problems, quirks that we want to change about ourselves. Most of those are safety mechanisms. So anytime that your environment and the people around you are less consistent, you feel less safe. You feel a need to control. So in times of transition, in times of moving, in times of, you know, relationships ending, that's when our patterns, our addictions, our bad habits, they come to their peak, right? Because it's our way of reestablishing control. So not only do I bring them with me, but they rear their ugly head in a way that maybe, uh, you know, I haven't seen in years in a way that I get to say, Oh, I see you now. There's no mistaking that you're there. Now let's work on it. So it is kind of a way to like, you know, rip your scabs open and say, I, I fully face like myself. Um, but you know, even if you think about, you know, even here now, like I have a gym, I go to, I have a grocery store, I go to, I have a scooter, I know my way around and I'm already like, we are so adaptable. I've been here for only, a few weeks and it already feels like 
I'm fully comfortable again. And so I'm being careful with myself to say, I like the experience of living in a place. And yet the moment I become really, really comfortable again is the moment that I've reestablished safety and my body can go back to equilibrium and say, ah, all those like trauma issues, emotional issues, habit, those things that you really want to work through, like we can actually kind of put those in the back burner now because you're not like threatened. So it's almost like threatening and triggering yourself. Like we talk about triggering, right? There's a word that we talk about, like it's a negative thing. Triggering is the body's mechanism to say, hey, like, I want to heal this. I'm self-healing. If, if you cut your finger right now, it's going to scab over almost immediately. Your body's programmed to heal. So everything that your body creates for you, including what we perceive of as negative, negative emotion, triggering is good. It's for healing purposes. So if we can use those things as indicators and on some level in a safe environment, seek them out, that's where the healing happens. And I'm sure, you know, like there's an example, seeking it out, seeking out the sympathetic nervous system response by putting yourself into a state of high stress on purpose, ice bath, same thing. Like, why would we do things that don't feel good? Why would we do things that hurt? Same reason we go to the gym, same reason we ice bathe, same reason that we do anything, right? Triggering is no different. Facing those fears is no different. Um, Letting yourself fall into this like negative emotional response, but then finding a way to reframe it, you know, in a productive way that is at odds with your old way, that that's good. Um, For me, travel is, is one huge piece of that because it's a huge umbrella, but there's all of these little pieces in it that are bound to make you uncomfortable. (laughs) I want to highlight something about that bit about, uh, consciously seeking triggers. I'm not sure if I've heard it worded that way, but it makes me, so for example, Mm. you made a great point about why do we exercise? Why do we cold take ice baths or anything of that nature? And it's because we're in, it's an intentional stress inoculator. We want to put ourselves in that state go mm-hmm. through it, prove to our nervous system, really prove to our mind through testing our nervous system, hey, I've got this, I can do this, I can overcome this stressor, come out better, deal with the the subconscious vomit of the thoughts that starts to come up and, and really show us what our body is holding within. As I heard quoted from a book, The Body Keeps Score. The thing I, I want to come back yeah, to so is good. that we should be almost like hunters seeking out our triggers. Is it was I picking up on what you were saying that the triggers in a way are an opportunity to reveal the wound that is there so we can go into whatever past feeling, yeah. emotion, or memory that is stored in ourselves such that, hey, like I'm here, this hurts, this sucks, but as long as I continue to ignore it, it will continue to pervade my human experience. It will continue to some way or another have its talons latched into my shoulders and be moving me around like I'm a puppet and allowing to you know, control my actions, my, my thoughts, my feelings, my experience of reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that there's like a should necessarily. I think like linguistics being something I am passionate about, that's also really important. Like there's no should, there's no like, we have to be triggering ourselves all the time for the purpose of healing. And like, I'm such a martyr. Like there's some of that too in the healing community. There's so much, um, Mm -hmm. this kind of brings into another topic, like this really interesting concept I've been thinking of. That's like, we, it's so hard to articulate because of our misunderstanding of like what trauma is physiologically we tend to like pathologize it, right? So people, it's like this thing floating above their head. And in a way, like, there's a whole industry now that's profiting. 
pathologize is like, oh, I'm so almost like victimized. Like, oh, I have trauma. I'm going to work on it. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we all have that. But there is like mm-hmm. a certain feeling of lack of integrity coming from this like healing high ticket coaching industry that like in maybe the sales process, like there is a feeling of as humans, like we all want to feel almost like there's something wrong with us. Like as much as we say that we won't, we it's like in our commitment to our own healing, we will often victimize ourselves, which is like this weird oxymoron. I think it's because not enough people know about the physiology of trauma. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but if we can teach people why are emotions trapped in the body, why does the nervous system get frozen in these loops? And if we know that, we'll understand that trauma has nothing to do with how quote severe the experience was, how bad it was, whether you were abused as a child, right? It's not something that only certain people get to wear as a badge of honor and other people don't. And I've seen coaches that market themselves based on how terrible their experiences have been and how much they've worked through their trauma. And it's just like, that's not the point, you know? Um, And so because of this lack of like physiological knowledge, which like, that's what I've studied, like how is the evolution of the brain creating the separation that then creates, you know, relates to this nervous system that creates trapped and unprocessed emotion. And how does this lead to habits and also sometimes physical symptoms. And at the end of the day, it's something that everybody has. If you're a human, you have trauma. It's not like this more like, it's not like some people get to have it and some people don't. It's not like somebody's is worse than somebody else's just because they had, you know, childhood, whatever, terrible experience. And as a child, like you don't, you don't measure magnitude your nervous system responds and you have a significant emotional feeling. Now, whether that was logical response to the event or not, doesn't matter. You're three years old. Right. So I feel like there's a lot of comparing, like who has more and the more trauma I have, the more reputable I am as a practitioner or, you know, whatever. Whereas like, to me, this is stemming from a lack of knowledge in the physiology, because again, if we, if we all learned the physiology, we would know that, First of all, by understanding the physiology, we can actually, in an essence, we can downplay the significance of trauma in a way that gives us more power over it and more power to, um, to, ah, it's so hard to explain, to work on it. Say everybody has it, which theoretically makes it look like it's like less important to have it, but actually because everybody has it, it's more important. It's something we can educate on. It's something that we can work through logically. So I want to, okay. I want to dive in uh, right there. I, so I actually, I want to pause yeah. you right there because I think that we're right now we're talking about something. So it's, it's almost like ethereal yeah. and we're, we're talking around something. I actually want to kind of go right. into it based off of some things that you said, which is one is couple of sentences. How are you defining trauma? Yeah, <laughs> that's, see, that's, that's the question, right? I think, Everybody loves to talk about it, mm-hmm. but nobody will define it. And if we all could define it, we would say, ah, actually now, like I don't have to, cause it leads us into this place of victimizing ourselves under the guise of actually working on it. When we could just say, oh, it's actually not that crazy. It's part of my physiology. And going to work on it without all this, like, I'm like, wait, eat like pathos that's, you know, put into it. But trauma is any unprocessed 
or um, like any unprocessed emotional information in the nervous system, which typically is negative. So if your body goes into fight or flight and your nervous system hasn't found a productive way of fully like ousting or dealing with this fight or flight cycle, it gets stuck in the body and it can stay there for a really, really long time under the surface until it is ah triggered. So it's essentially unprocessed biochemical information. My One of my uh, like metaphors for this is the body's all about movement. And when I say movement, I mean there's some comes in and some goes out. When we take a breath, we have to exhale. When we eat, well, we all know what happens the next morning if you have a regular system, right? Everything is circulating. Everything is coming in and going out. That is how the body works. That's mm-hmm. equilibrium, right? And the same goes for emotions. So emotions are created in the nervous system by biochemical information, neurotransmitters on a simple level. Um, hormones are different types of ligands, as they're called. So they are released and circulated into the body, into the, you know, into the nervous system, which is also how emotions become feelings. So what is the difference between emotion and a feeling? Emotion might be the thought that's affiliated or the emotion is kind of like the experience. And the feeling is, oh my God, I feel anger and it's in my chest or I feel anxiety and it's in my stomach. Like it creates a physical feeling. So if say your body goes into a fight or flight response, your nervous system says, ding, 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 I'm not safe. It releases biochemical information that creates these emotions of perhaps anxiety, panic, um, whatever it is. Um, that's what we call a significant emotional event in German new medicine or other things. A significant emotional event happens, which elevates the physiological response of the body. Emotions are physiological. If you're three years old, your brain is not fully developed. Your brain waves are in what we might call a hypnotic state, essentially. So you don't really have any discernment in terms of like, what does this mean? What's the logic of this situation? Your body just responds. Your body either feels safe or it doesn't, which is why a lot of us, we trap these things as children. Um, because also as children, and this is changing now, we weren't most of us taught healthy ways of processing emotion. We were told not to cry at inappropriate times. We were told not to be too loud. We were told to be quiet, right? So we found other ways to push this down. So our body goes into fight or flight, has a significant emotional event. And instead of letting that biochemistry flow through fully complete its process in the way we would an inhale and exhale, you know, ingestion, digestion, our body just kind of hangs on to it, right? And we find ways, and, and this is a really, and there's so many ways to describe this. This is the physiology of it. You can read a lot about like Joe Dispenza when you're talking about emotion. And then on like the more spiritual side, you have it described in, uh, I believe it's called a samskara in certain like yogic traditions. Is basically a fight or flight loop, which is a trapped uh, like energy cycle in the body, trapped emotion. And Michael Singer in his book, uh, I think it's the untethered soul he talks about. He talks about these. Um, and he, his metaphor is that it's a thorn in your side. So you go through your whole life with this thorn in your side. And if something hits it, it hurts mm-hmm. really bad. Like if something accidentally, t- and that's a trigger. But you could go your whole life protecting it, trying not to let anything touch it. You could build a whole box around yourself to make sure that nothing touches that thorn in your side because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be triggered. It doesn't feel good for people that challenge you emotionally, it doesn't feel good. So that's what we do unconsciously is we build this thing around us to protect the thorn in our side instead of allowing it to hurt just enough to pull it out, which is essentially like trauma release work, right? So that's the metaphor. 
but it's essentially unprocessed biochemical information. And then we go into this conversation on manifestation, which is, in my opinion, highly misunderstood. It's physiological. What happens when you have a trapped emotion like that is it creates, in a sense, what we might call an emotional addiction. Your body creates patterns whereby, say, you have this crazy significant emotional event of panic. Maybe it happens more than once. That information is stored. This biochemistry that creates panic, right? Your cells become conditioned to accepting that biochemical information. So your cells, they acquire greater receptor sites on their membranes for that specific biochemical information, which means now you have a chemical addiction to an emotion. So anytime we have chemical addictions to chemicals that are external drugs, what we're really addicted to is the feeling that we get Mm -hmm. from that, right? That's always how it goes. So it's the same thing. And then that leads us to certain, quote, physical manifestations, whether it's addiction, whether it's I find myself continuously in the same type of abusive relationship, like because our reticular activating system, our brain is now filtered in to seek out opportunities to fulfill this biochemical emotional addiction because our body craves it. And then if, if we deny ourselves of it, we say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm only going to seek out, you know, relationships that serve me and da, 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 da. We have like similar to drug withdrawal. We have like withdrawal symptoms of, I need this emotion, right? Whether it's this person takes everything personally, no matter what you say, you can't talk sense into them because victimization for them, whatever that emotion is, is like trapped somewhere and laced. And so you start to, uh, you continue to create situations to fulfill this like emotional need with this trapped thing. And uh, theoretically, when you release it, you can, you know, um, get rid of it. But the only way to really release it is, again, to trigger it. (laughs) You have to fully associate into the emotion and find another way of dealing with it, which in a lot of trauma release therapy includes letting it come over you in a safe space so that your body is safe. And then finding what the learnings might be or other things or uh, and that's more of a heady way to do it. In the body, you could, of course, in the ice bath, something like, example, you could activate the nervous system response and then, um, like, uh, deliberately find a productive way of calming your nervous system back down. And then the more you do that, the more practice you have, the more you're able to release old things and, and not trap new ones. But, I mean, there's so many ways to describe it. I just think that for a lot of people, they don't know really what it is. All they know is that... It doesn't feel good. They have something that gets triggered because of past event. And back to what I said before about us victimizing ourselves under the guise of doing the work, I think in maybe more traditional forms of therapy, there's a lot of let's talk about it, let's skate around it, but let's not like trigger you too much, you know? And I, it's, it's hard to have this conversation because you want to be gentle and you want to be understanding. Trauma is no joke. Like some people do have really serious stuff that you don't want to like accidentally trigger. I mean, it's a huge consideration, but at the same time, I think this like really, really like pussyfooting around our problems attitude, it doesn't really empower us very much either to understand how to do this. And I think if people were educated more on their physiology, instead of just, Hey, like your psychologist, they went to school for years to learn the science, but they're not going to teach you any of the science. They're just going to ask you how you feel. I think that's super disempowering. I think that the general public needs to be educated on the science, right? 
similar to nutrition, like how could we be walking around in these bodies every day and have no idea what the fuck we're mm-hmm. eating? It's, it's like the same, the same thing. You're throwing the word physiology around a lot. And I want to, again, quick context. How do you define physiology of relating to the body or do you have a different way to uh, define? Yeah. Uh, of relating to the physical body. So for me, when I use the word physiology, I'm trying to really reiterate that emotion is physical. Okay. And the, the experience, although, so I was, if you see me looking down, it's because I take notes and I write things down because otherwise I'll forget stuff. Uh, something happens in our environment, some kind of experience happens. And from what I'm gathering, from what you're saying, and partially projecting from what I've personally learned and studied, I think we've, we've kind of studied some some lineage, similar lineage in like Joe Dispenza's work and stuff like that. Uh, oh, yeah. We have an experience. Brain takes the experience it and how we associate slash attach meaning to that experience is uh, partly how we, dis- how we, our relatedness to it determines how we respond to it and how we respond to it, I think is kind of pointing at whether or not you're saying it becomes a trauma, something becomes unprocessed and actually gets stored in like the cells of our body and it is mm-hmm. trapped emotions, trapped and unprocessed emotions. And in a way we, we almost are unconsciously, subconsciously fulfilling that neurochemical addiction through putting ourselves in similar environments, surrounding ourselves with similar people. The thing I can point a finger at Mm -hmm. most easily is I could think of how I've, for example, dated people who end up cheating on me and it's happened multiple times. And if I really were to take a look at that, it, you know, you can read into it all you want, but at a fundamental level, like that consistently happens and it leaves me at the end feeling not awesome, mm-hmm. right? Like going through the the experience of yeah. grief and the yeah. physiological, biological, neurochemical result that that is. And the more that I entertain that through con- consistently seeking out relationships that are either fulfilling that or if I have self-fulfilling prophecy or if I'm showing up in a particular way that elicits that response, the fundamental thing to acknowledge is that, wait mm-hmm. a second, this is a pattern. I'm picking up on this and I can continue to let it go unconscious right. and let it go unknown, or I can actually shed light on it, which, you know, naturally when we start to, to bring light to things that the, the, uh, the creatures that lurk in the dark and they feel that light and it burns like, ah, this is super unfucking comfortable, but it's in a way yeah. finding a yeah. way. I, I think what you're saying is to shine a light, but also not have it be so bright that you end up burning off all of your flesh, meaning right. with the trauma, right. right? Like there are some trauma, some things that are, need to be really considered and, and taken uh, gradually, right? There's like the exposure method as it yes. relates to fear. You can do systematic desensitization or baby steps towards being more comfortable with that stimuli, or you can just go all in. But for some people to go all in would potentially increase the amount of trauma or emotional baggage that ends up happening around that thing because it just already adds to what's there. Right. And it sounds like, uh, what you're mm-hmm. saying is, is that there isn't a one shoe fits all in it. It's that acknowledging that we have these trapped emotions, we have these traumas or unprocessed emotions, and that really it's about finding a way that we can begin to process it, to digest that food versus just kind of letting it yep. sit in there and, and rot in a way. Our body is meant to flush out food. Inhale, but don't hold your totally. inhale. You'll pass out. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think, like, again – you get a cut, your body scabs it over. If you're triggered, it's because your body wants you to address it. Like your body is self healing. So 
and you're always attracting triggers, right? Like it doesn't feel good to be in that relationship that ends in a certain way. But, you know, I've done a lot of work with uh, women with history of eating disorder or binge eating and all that, um, as it's been a part of my experience. And my like one of my simplest examples for like a quick feedback loop on a pattern, which everyone has patterns, which you could say are trauma, really, um, is like so binge eating, you know, let's say I'm having a conversation with someone who is like, I, I can't stop binge eating and I feel so guilty or, you know, they're a client, they just binged and they're, they're beating themselves up. And I asked them, you know, what, what's the, uh, because it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't matter whether it feels binge good eating or, or beating yourself up or both. Sorry. The emotion associated afterwards oh, okay, doesn't feel it. good, but it doesn't matter if it doesn't feel good. If it keeps happening, you're addicted to it. Like you mm-hmm. want, your body wants to feel the guilt, right? So it's like, what, for what purpose do you feel guilty right now? And they're like, well, I guess it doesn't really serve any purpose. So you have to think like, even if you have a negative feeling, a negative emotion, a negative response, even a negative behavior, there is always a payoff. If it is sticking around, if you haven't resolved it, if it's a pattern, if it's happening multiple times, I don't care whether it feels good or not. I don't care whether it's bad or not. It has a payoff. There is something that it is doing for you. Otherwise, it would not continue because that doesn't make sense. Your body is wired for survival. Your body is wired for like evolution, right? Things don't stick around unless they serve a purpose for you. So the question is, if you're, you know, continuously in this binge cycle, right? Well, your body is addicted to the guilt that comes afterwards, no matter whether it feels good or not. So I try to explain to them, like, actually, the worse you feel about it, the more likely you are to do it again. Whereas if you can just learn to reframe yourself enough to shrug it off and say, I'm not going to feel bad about this. I'm actually going to move forward. That's how most people heal from something like this. And there's Mm -hmm. the, the irony, the irony of it all, especially when it comes to discipline or changing your ways is sometimes trying less hard, surrendering more. Sometimes discipline isn't the answer because what matters more than what you're doing is from what place and for what purpose. And if you're disciplining yourself through self-hatred, through guilt, through hating where you are now in this present moment, well, you're always going to be searching for discipline, searching for discipline. So for me, like discipline is less about going against the grain and it's more about changing the direction of the grain, which is what we're talking about here, which for many people includes, you know, actually sometimes you, it feels like you're trying less hard, which doesn't make sense. Right. But you're reframing the emotional space. Um, so that was a tangent. But when it comes to like the integration period, right, there is no one size fits all. And that's what I think it means truly to be trauma informed. I don't think trauma informed just means, hey, I learned about trauma. It's like the ability to like <laughs> speak with someone and know like where they're at, what they can handle. And then as you go, like know when to stop, know when to give more space, ask them always if they're open to like doing this at this moment in time. Um and yeah, I mean, because if you, we talked about it a lot, like already, like trauma is physiological. So it could be easy in, in some people to like, quote, overload the system. Right. And this is what we mean when we talk about integration. There are people say, oh, I'm integrating. It's an integration. Maybe it's from ayahuasca or like whatever. Like there's an integration period. But again, do we really know what that means? And integration is just like your body. Like I like to think of it as the dust settling. Like you're always stirring up the dust stirring the pot because then you get to find those pieces that you want to pluck out right that's trauma that's facing the trigger that's associating into the emotion you have to dive in in order to get it out which is why it doesn't always feel good 
but it's better in the end. But that process like needs some time to settle your, your physiology, your nervous system often needs time to readjust. Um, and for some people during that integration period, they'll have physical symptoms too. Like I've, I've seen people do trauma work and they have what's called a healing crisis after they do significant work where they might have even a fever or like something a couple days later, like their body will get sick. And this is like, um, there's so many different fields of study with this, but if you want to study a little German new medicine, this is, you know, the theory, so to speak, that anytime you have a physical symptom of illness, that is the healing portion. That's after like the illness happened before this is your body responding to it. So the fever is a good thing. The rash is a good thing. The pain is a good thing. Uh, as long as it can fully process. Now, if you have a healing crisis caused by emotional trauma that is not resolved, that's when your body goes into a healing crisis loop, which is what you might call the phys- the physical representation of the trauma loop, right? So you have maybe chronic eczema. You have flare-ups of autoimmune. Not to say that all physio- physiological ailments are emotional roots, but many of them, that's a contributing factor for sure. Um, like I, I've worked with a few clients who have chronic e- eczema and it's gone away after we have worked on some of the emotional stuff, which like blows my mind completely. But, um, if it's unresolved, it can, it can come back. Um, because your body is continuously trying to go back into that healing itself phase. But on a more acute basis, you can have that from, from some of the emotional work too. And that that's part of the integration, but you know, you want to give your body time to do that. Um, and I, I think I have learned my lesson too, within the last year or so of, there have been times when maybe I, I did a little, uh, a little too much for my body to handle at one time. And it, it threw me into a cyclone of like some really difficult times and they were all for the better, but it, it can be hard sometimes to navigate, you know, cause you, you also have to keep up with your responsibilities in life. And it's another part of the reason that many of us never get to do this work is because it, um, you know, keeping up with the busyness of life, responsibilities, work, kids, surviving, yeah. that takes, takes you right out of, you know, puts you right into that numb place of like, okay, everything in my body is trapped and it's dormant. Like you're like a dormant volcano because like you don't have the time and the space and the safety to really dive in. Um, and that opens a whole other conversation on like the, the privilege and even the socioeconomics of being able to even think about doing drama work, you know, uh, which we could do a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> yeah. Something there was an analogy used a couple of times about the uh, the stirring up the dust. I want to piggyback off of that for a little bit because it, generally speaking, there is a we have tendencies. Some of us tend towards we're always stirring up shit all the time. We're always looking for opportunities to to grow and expand. But like with anything, too much of a good thing to become a bad thing. I don't personally subscribe to good and bad as much these days, but it's either serving or not serving in that. If you don't take time to, if you're always eating food all the time, if you're always stirring up shit all the time, then you will 
you will you fuck up your digestive system you fuck up your body because it didn't have time to actually process what it was that it went through and here you are going from one ayahuasca trip not having actually integrated the lessons from the first one going to the next one thinking oh if i keep just feeling 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 and having insights something that a mentor of mine shared with me i thought was really brilliant was that an insight is not a breakthrough a breakthrough requires action and it would require us to take actions towards integration, like actually taking time to, whether it's journal, to reflect, to genuinely sit with this feeling that I have in my chest, this this like experience of unworthiness that I feel after I've been through this stirring up process. You you actually have to ground and bring back to earth the thing that you've kind of pulled from the ether versus someone who is on the other side of the spectrum who is consciously avoiding triggering challenging situations and i'm sure you would have your own insight on this but i would I'd imagine it's, it's a defense mechanism it's the uh it's the desire the natural desire for our nervous system to seek comfort because it likes the known world it likes continuity it likes consistency and the second that we deviate from that it's like huh, what's going on yeah. Yeah. squirrel and it just wants to get back to uh, homeostasis, right? That that balanced, nurturing state. So for our people who do a lot of shit and don't integrate, <laughs> you need to integrate mm. and slow down. Versus our people who don't want to seek out those triggers, those challenges, going through, you know, it's like throw yourself in an ice bath versus somebody who's sitting over here. You need to journal, which I think points at another thing we were saying before, which is you had to make time. You have to, it's no one says shoes fits all because someone might need the shoe that says sit down and integrate. Someone might need the shoe that says go throw yourself right. in an ice bath or exercise or talk with your partner who you've been avoiding having that conversation with where you say, you know what, like I have so much love and adoration for you, but this relationship is no longer pointing me in the direction of my highest self or what it is that I see for my future and actually just going through that work. Mm. Yeah. And I think you like, I mean, again, there's like, my brain is like oh, so many directions I could, I could take this, but I think this brings us back. You said something really interesting that quote, doing the work in, in some ways, keeping yourself super busy, being so interested in self-development and growth and setting goals and all that. Right. That that's supposed to be like this mm-hmm. uh, antithesis to the classical, like nine to five grind kind of lifestyle, right? Like my life is my choice and I don't work for anybody else. And I'm going to, you know, create freedom. And, but the irony is that like, we still are, at this place of not being able to not work. And it's similar to like, I get obsessed with the gym. I work out a ton and I don't rest enough. And then your coach tells you like, Oh, actually you need to rest more like that. People are always like on one side or the other. Um, and you said that yeah. you had referred to like in, in some ways can doing the work actually backfire and become quote a defense mechanism. So we become so obsessed with self-development and goal setting and doing the work, doing the work, doing the work, even as it pertains to our emotional healing, that we're actually avoiding the work, right? Because the one thing that you need the most for the emotional healing is presence. The only way to get into a place of healing trauma, number one, is presence. You have to fully associate into the emotion. And then integration takes presence. It takes space. It takes stillness. And so if you're never taking that, you're never reaping the benefit of what you do do. So it's interesting to me that sometimes the people who are saying that, you know, they're most interested in self-development and growth and da 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 da, they're growing the least because same as mu- muscle development, right? You don't grow in the gym. You grow when you're sleeping in bed at night after you've eaten a great meal and you are not moving shit. Like you already did the work and now you are resting. Um, so what I always come back to, which has been a huge theme for me in the last few 
months really mm. presence is the ability to be here now, the ability to be in your body, the ability to be embodied, the ability to be fully associated safely into your emotions in this moment. So presence is nervous system safety, but it's also like, it's where we touch back down. It's where our inspiration comes from. It's where new ideas come from. And when we're quote, doing the work all the time, when we're traveling around to what we're creating and what we're doing and what, you know, what time our next meeting is, we're not here. Yeah. We're not here. We're not present. And physiologically, that is, you know, chronic fight or flight, so to speak. So the interesting thing is that by mm-hmm. we could use the excuse of doing the work, even trauma work, trauma work being, quote, getting out of fight or flight, we could unconsciously be using that to keep ourselves in fight or flight because it's so I addictive. Do that shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so one thing that like just to touch on that, that it's, it's a cycle. It's like the breathing in and the breathing out, the emotions in and the emotions out, the eating and taking a shit is the same. Like the last time I had a major shrimp trip, <laughs> which was in August here in San Jose del Pacifico, I had this um, vision of like going out and coming home and going out and coming home. And it was like, this happens on a short-term basis, shortest term being like you're taking a breath, exhaling. Okay. You go out for the day, you come home. And then there are some periods in your life of weeks or months where you're more externally focused, you're creating shit, you're, you're working on the inspiration and the, the information. Like you've already gathered this information and now you're projecting it back out. Like you're in a business growth phase, whatever it is. And then there are times to draw back and you naturally, you don't have much to say. You don't have much to build. You don't have much to present, but you're consuming. You're consuming new information. Maybe this is that three month period where you're like, holy shit, I read 50 books. I didn't do any work, but I read 50 books and I'm consuming information that then I'm ready to project back out. That's the cycle is, you know, going out and building, coming home, like sitting on your eggs right? And to me that like, I saw it as like the infinity symbol it was like, that's life. Like you, you go out and you come home and you go out and you come home and you go out and you come home. But so many of us, we never come home on a short-term basis. That could be, some of us never leave home. <laughs> home. Home is the present moment. So, so if you never leave home, you're not building anything. You're not doing anything. Maybe you're like a total stoner. So you're always present because you're like, this is great. But then everyone's like, you know, do shit with your life. Right. And then if you never come home, well, you don't ever give it time to actually grow, right? You're you're continuously like beating this punching bag. And the punching bag is like, yo, give me a break. Like, I got to recover from all these bruises you gave me. Like, I, I can't become stronger without a lull in the grind, you know? Um, mm. So I think that's something that I, I come back to often, especially because in business particularly, I've always kind of naturally followed this like, you know, and if I resist it and I, I try to stay out of the house too long, I hate everything. I resent everything. Everything becomes difficult. And then as soon as I give myself permission to just like right now is a period to just do less. But in the doing less, there's so much more that I get done. Yeah. And then the experience of feeling brain dead. Right. This is like down the further down the line from this central place is. I feel brain dead. I feel like my brain doesn't work the way it used to. I feel like I can't write anymore. I can't speak anymore. I can't even be social anymore. I'm losing how to, like, I don't know how to be a human in social environments. Like you, you like lost your flow. You're like, I can't, I remember a time when I had so much to say and I was so inspired and my ideas were gold and I was writing and it was amazing. And now I'm like, I, I'm brain dead. And if you get back to that place, you know, it's time to come back to the present because in the present, that's when you also connect, you open your heart. Like it's all the same. This is when we self-connect, right? Your heart is closed. You're emotionally disassociated because you're not in the present. As soon as you come back to the present, 
your heart becomes engaged again. Then from what I have experienced, you reconnect to your innate energy tap. And as soon as you have just enough time there, all of that inspiration flows back and you're like, ah, I'm back in flow. I have my fire back. I remember who I am. Right. But that comes from coming home. That's like, so I did this course in February called reignite the fire. And that's what it was about. It was about reigniting your fire, but from a perspective of nervous system regulation, this is why you don't feel this. You don't feel fulfilled. You don't feel happy. You don't feel joy. You don't feel self-love. You don't feel self-love because your nervous system is up here. You're not in the present moment. Self-love is like one effect of being present. So if we can reframe it that way, it's this transition where now we get to come home and now we take action out of healthy inspiration, you know, healthy, consistent action, steady pace instead of like urgency, 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 urgency. Right. So I call that the V transition urgency, fight or flight. I'm working because I have to, nothing is flowing. Everything keeps slapping me in the face. All right, cool. Well, you can't go here until you come back home. So come back to the bottom of the V, come to the present moment, reconnect to your energy tap, open your heart, associate into your emotions, create safety, spend as much time there as you want. And then you naturally come up the other side where you're like, I started working again, but I didn't have to try. I started going to the gym again, but I didn't have to try. It just felt naturally inspired and in flow. And I'm actually patient this time because I don't have this urgency to get away from where I am because I'm so present that I just want to do this. That's, I mean, and this is a huge tangent again, but that's like the, maybe the energetic or the experiential effect of the physiological regulation, right? Like it's all, it's all the same. Hmm. <laughs> Drink coffee. The, the image is <laughs> popping in my head as I think about, I think, I think about the podcast. So this is the second episode that we're recording since we stopped recording in 2020. Because in 2020, when the podcast started and the pandemic hit, hit, we recorded like about 30 podcasts back to back to back to back to back. And we've been releasing them ever oh, yeah. since. Amazing. And we ran out at the end of like 2021, I think. And once we hit that point, me and my producer, we sat down and just re we just retook a look at what we were doing because we spent so much time churning and burning and running and yes. going up that one side of the V that you're referring to that we didn't really get to, to take a step back and say, okay, like we, we were constantly refining and making it better, but we didn't take time to come home to represence our purpose to really like more clarify our purpose. I mean, you imagine after 30 episodes of, you know, an hour and a half conversations ish, give or take that you, you start to figure out and not like in a, any kind of like personal jab, but you start to look at which of these guests, which of these conversations that I have the most fun talking to, mm. which, which conversations seem to inspire the most change. Because one thing that is really important to me inside of this context, this container, which I, I do want to um, make a point that we get there as well is turning these ideas into actionable items because as i've heard mm-hmm. repeated multiple multiple times over there's no law of attraction without action of actually taking the things that you channel from wherever you channel it from god universe the yeah. divine whatever it is and you bring it back to earth and you go and you do the work you do that thing right we we had the idea of the podcast we took and we worked work 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 but we worked so much that we went to the other side of that teeter and yeah. when we came back and we refocused the mission 
we figured out, okay, we want to talk to this type of person on the podcast. We are really focused on having people share their medicine such that people who are listening can, can listen and say, okay, this person or this form of medicine works for me or it doesn't. But I'm sure you've also had this experience where sometimes you figure out what you do like by figuring out all the fucking things you don't like, like going and trying all the flavors of ice cream and realizing Rocky Road sucks, chocolate sucks, but cookie dough is my <laughs> shit. I fucking love me some cookie dough. And yeah, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. let's buy about some cookie dough. So now like here we are now, we went back home, we grounded it, and now we're starting to represence again. We've now been able to upgrade our systems and our softwares and thinking about how we can – promote it better but that didn't happen until we full stopped until he went his did his live things i did mine and now take a step back exhale (sighs) yeah okay what are we fucking doing now (laughs) and just like taking that time because it's so it's so fucking important and if you're like me you tend towards go 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 oh shit i gotta come home at some point yep (laughs) And, that's and why knowing what so, you tend towards. Yeah. That's why I feel so passionately about it. Cause I spend so much of my life just, you know? Um, and I love that you said like, it, it's a full stop. Like presence is a full stop. Presence is here. It is a full stop. And like, if you're going to make, you're not getting any work done over here. You have to make a full stop to like accelerate over here. Like sometimes you have to make a full stop to you know, mm-hmm. to build up the potential energy, right. In that moment of stillness to fucking shoot. Um, and I think like, you know, you could apply that metaphorically to like any part of life, but mm-hmm. application wise, I would just remind people like, especially when it comes to first, like, like to apply in your own life, but then also to apply with discernment. If you're in like, you know, if you're interested or you're being marketed to by like trauma, therapy, healing, whatever, just this attitude that we bring to everything, even healing, that's like, oh, there's always more to be done. I always have to do more. I always have to be better. Like, just have some discernment, (laughs) have some discernment too for, for that narrative and some discernment for the way that people present it. And like, is this a person that I really want to do this with? Is this a way for them to be selling me? Because I mean, there is a lot of that, like, the end of the day spirituality and even healing it's become highly commoditized just like anything else and it's a super shame um i mean it was a shame that health has become commoditized like all of these things that that should be you know shouldn't be but um i think yeah like one one application factor is just to have an eye of discernment for you know what you need if right now you need stillness and you don't need to dive in and do more quote of the work, the best thing that you can do is listen to yourself because just because you have a mentor doesn't mean that they're going to know what's best for you. They're going to know how to get you from point A to point B based on what they've done. But if they're not a very good mentor, they won't be able to read your energy enough to say, Hey, actually, I think this is a full stop time for you. And, and having enough grace and knowing when to distinguish and this is like, the whole discipline conversation, right? How do I learn to tell the mm-hmm. difference? How do I learn to tell the difference between I really need to full stop? I'm, I'm exhausted. I need this time. And I'm being a little bitch and I need to get off my ass. How do you make, how mm-hmm. do you, and I think one of the best ways to learn about yourself, to master your own discipline, to master your own self and to master your own accomplishments is to know the difference between those two places. 
and to apply your life accordingly. When do I need to push myself? And when do I not? And when am I pushing myself out of a need to distract? Because I'm, because it's like, for those of us who are more doers, right? Like it takes more discipline for me to rest than it does to do shit. You got to know that about yourself. Otherwise the whole world will tell you that you're super honorable for being disciplined and all you're ever going to get for it is positive feedback when it could be the last thing that you need. Mm. It's a difficult place to be because all you're ever going to get is positive feedback. The majority of people won't be able to act the way that you do, but it could be the last thing that you need. Yeah. It's funny. We, we celebrate discipline and, and go and get it and, and achievements and accolades. What we aren't celebrating as much yet. And I think as a part of my personal internal mission, I would even say it's probably even potentially connected to your mission as well Is that we, we celebrate going into the darkness, into the un, what we might deem as unworthy, unlovable, really ugly aspects of ourselves. Like really looking at our, at our scabs and, and like showing the world, like, Hey, like, here's a scab that I'm working on. Here's a, I'm learning to be more compassionate and loving towards myself versus, Oh, well, I, I, I binged eat today. I, I ate, a, I just ate way more than I potentially should have or whatever the thing mm-hmm. is. And now I'm this bad, terrible person versus, you know what? Like I did this today and I'm acknowledging it inside of the context of not beating myself up, but just realizing I do have an intention for myself that is other than this, that I can love this aspect of my consciousness too, as an, as an intention to integration. And I imagine a day when I more consistently wake up and I'm not having to fight those urges and those cravings, but I can compassionately love where I'm at as well. And and learning to celebrate that part of the journey versus just the grind. What about the part where we're just also like celebrating being and really being with our shit? I mean, I love that. I think this touches again on, on the whole discipline, like something about humans, it's like egoic or whatever. We love to suffer. Like, and we love to show people that we're suffering. It's like super honorable. That's why everyone's so obsessed with discipline when it comes to fitness. It's like, I look this way because I cause myself more pain than you. And it's not like explicitly stated, but it's still a thing. (laughs) And it's funny because in, in the healing, in the healing world, we talk about grace and we talk about loving ourselves when the reality is we're still bringing that same narrative in because we love the pain of it. We love the heaviness of it. We love to talk about the trauma that we had and the work that we've done. Like it's this honorable thing. So other people can read it and want to buy from us. And like, it's so fucked up, honestly, (laughs) it's so, um, we love the pain. We love the heaviness of it. And the irony is that this is kind of what I was trying to explain at the beginning, making it so heavy is how we further victimize ourselves and prevent ourselves from healing. Whereas if we have this more nonchalant attitude towards it, Hey, this is physiology. This is something that everybody has. It actually makes it more significant by making it less significant and makes, gives us more power over it to, to change it. Right. So kind of like tangent off of that, what you said of like back to the emotional addiction thing. Okay. The, the more I allow myself to feel guilty about what I just did, the more I'm inviting it to happen again. I am reliving the cycle. So if I can shrug it off and say, okay, I have other goals for myself, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to beat myself up for what just happened. That's how you change it. And, and as an application piece, since you brought that up, one thing that I've used a lot with myself and clients, particularly for like binge eating is a really good example. But anytime that you find yourself 
first of all, you have to start off by building like a practice of emotional awareness and self-awareness. So self-observation, being able to um, observe your, be be in a a place of self-observation often enough to where when you're in this trance of behavior that is a pattern, you're actually able to recognize it before you're just completely finished. So in other words, rather than coming up for air and realizing I just ate the whole cupboard after a binge, being able to slow down enough (laughs) while it's happening to self-observe and say, okay, hold up, full stop. I'm in the pantry. I am shoving chips down my throat. And just being able to acknowledge like, here I am, I'm here. Let me get back in my body for a second. Because if you're in that trance, you're not in your body. You're out of the present moment. You're in fight or flight. Your nervous system is not here. If your nervous system were here, you wouldn't be moving so fast, right? And, and those of us who've especially struggled with binging, we know it's a very urgent trance-like state, uh, as many addictions are. And being, and this is a linguistic reframe. So linguistics, certain words have certain meanings that are already pre-established uh, in our unconscious mind. So the word interesting is interesting because it's completely neutral, there's no good. There's no bad. It's just interesting. So if you can, if you can say, okay, the, the word interesting is already programmed into my unconscious mind. So if I speak to myself out loud, I can use this to change my state. So step one, self-observation. I'm in the cupboard. I'm shoving chips in my face. Wow. Okay. I'm here. This is like, I'm stating it out loud. I am in the cupboard. I'm shoving chips in my face. This is where I am in this present moment. And then instead of being like, fuck, what am I doing? <laughs> okay. Shut up. No. I mean, don't shut up, but you know, gently and say, force yourself to say, force yourself to say, wow, this is what I'm doing. This is where I am. And then say, huh, that's interesting. And then say it as many times as you have to. It's so interesting that almost without realizing it, I ended up in the cupboard with with chips in my face. It's so interesting that I just ate so much food and I'm, I'm still going and I'm not even hungry. It's so interesting that this happens to me at least once a week and I'm still trying to figure it out. And you know, I'm working on it, but And it's so interesting that I'm feeling like I really want this old emotion of guilt to come up right now, but I know it's not productive. It's so interesting. And then as soon as you say it's interesting, there's no good, there's no bad. You have neutralized the place that you're in. You've neutralized the emotion. Mm -hmm. So you can't feel negatively about it anymore, but you're not condoning the behavior either. And then you, you cancel it out and you're able, hopefully, as time goes on, to stop. But without having the negative emotion that pops up afterwards... That's going to cause it to happen again. As soon as you say it's interesting, that payoff I talked about earlier, that payoff for what purpose are you engaging in this behavior? It's because you actually like to feel like shit, right? The payoff is gone because it's, it's completely neutral. If there's no bad and there's no good, because either of them could be the payoff. Both of them can be pleasurable. Both of them can be safe. Then the payoff is completely gone. So the more that you use that, linguistic reframe the more you'll realize like i just don't really feel the need to binge i don't really feel the need to to do this behavior anymore because there's no payoff so why would you and so the really interesting thing is it happens as an emotional payoff but also your body creates the habit so you have a neural network like riding a bike like it's a physical circuit of action So after I was anorexic in college, I had years of binge eating problems. And what I experienced was that there was this space between the payoff leaving and then retraining my physical body to stop. 
So they're at first, like for a while, binging was like, oh my God, I felt terrible, but I got this emotional high off of it, right? There was a payoff and it was guilt, but it was a payoff. Then the payoff was gone, but it was like my body still tried to go through the motions. I would go to the store, mm-hmm. I'd buy a bunch of food and then I would get home and I'd be like, or I'd be like walking around the grocery store and I would just be like, I drove here to like buy shit, but yeah, I don't want any of it. And I would just leave. And I realized it's because I had a, a physical neural network for the habit. My body remembered how to ride that bike, but the, the emotional payoff was gone. So usually you work on getting rid of the emotional payoff first. This is one way you can do it. And then second, when you're in that place of level-headedness and awareness, you just like train your physical body out of the habit. It's kind of like a two-step process. So you might notice that you physically still go for those old habits, but there'll be a period of time where you'll continue engaging in them out of habit, but they'll cease to be satisfying in the same way. And that's when you just decide to stop. So is that, uh, I want to, I want to tangibilize this. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's what I'm going to run with. I made it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tangibilize. I want to tangibilize yeah. this. And maybe you've already given the example with the going to the pantry, getting food, but Let's give a real world example for the sake of, of kind of mocking this out. What does it look like? In re- so here we are. The situation is happening. And I first step one, it sounds like it's having the awareness that I'm doing this. But mm-hmm. how do we go from letting the program run its course and we get at the end and we shame and guilt ourselves? So first acknowledging this is how it usually goes. I, yeah. I do the thing in a weird way. I almost like know I'm doing the thing, but it's like, I'm like you said, I'm in a trance. So it's like, I know it, but I'm not really at the same You're time, still really it. fully consciously present in my body about what the fuck is going mm-hmm. on. Still doing the thing. Right. So how do I go from that to, I would imagine it's, I mean, it's, it's a little rewiring of our neurocircuitry, right? Instead of allowing yeah. the, the neurocircuitry and the dots to fire that say I engage this behavior, shame and guilt. And I reaffirm that through the emotional addiction that I create because I, I love what it feels like. To, weirdly, we, we like love the chemical addiction that we have created, yeah. but not like consciously, probably more of like right. a subconscious, like we're just used to it. What is, mm-hmm. what does this look like in reality? Here we are. How do we neutralize it and then begin to actually create a neural change and, and, re- and rewire that. Yeah. So I think when you're in the trance of that, it can be hard to like stop yourself and be like, what am I feeling? So step one, when I say, when I first start with a client is usually like the first thing we work on. One of the very first things is we build a practice of emotional awareness. So a lot of times like, and there's a couple of brain, a Brown specials on this. It's really good. I forgot. There's a, uh, I forgot there's a number, uh, something like 80 something words for different emotions. Whereas like most people only know like three or four, they're like sad, happy, frustrated, mad, sad, happy, and angry. I think are like the three that most people like really know. And a lot of times, like when you start with someone, how are you feeling? They'll use like every word under the sun before they come to a word that even describes an emotion. That's how emotionally unaware we are because we've never been taught Like we're teaching children emotional awareness now. Who had a class for that in school as an adult now? Nobody. So the first step is, yeah, like just number one, expanding our vocabulary on the words we use to describe how we feel and then practicing um, because it can be hard to stop yourself often and be like, oh, what am I feeling? I usually say like, okay, three times a day, morning, when you first wake up, (laughs) midday and then night, you set an alarm on your phone. That's like a, how am I feeling check-in? 
And no matter like mm-hmm. what it is, you stop in that moment. You're like, what emotions am I feeling? And you really explore and you try to use that new vocabulary to describe what you're feeling. So this builds the practice of over time, consistently checking in with oneself. And that's how we build a habit of emotional awareness, which then makes it easier for us to go into the next step of what we talked about before. But it usually it takes a few weeks of really practicing that before we might be in a place where we're even able to stop, stop, drop in. That's interesting, you know, uh, because it can be hard to like stop, stop, stop the trend. That's interesting. So, yeah. So I think like the first step is always building a practice of emotional awareness, which is also like you're strengthening the muscle of self-observation, but not just from a logical heady place from a, I am fully experiencing the sensations in my body place. It's not like I'm up here like, Oh, what am I thinking about? It's like, what is my whole body feeling? Because you have to be in your body in order to even do that. So it, it's probably a, a, the two main steps combined are emotional awareness and then nervous system regulation techniques like multisensory meditation, breath work, and other things that are tools in someone's toolbox to help them get their physical body back to the present moment because it's easier to be emotionally aware in that place. So you come at it from both angles. Let me calm the body down. Let me use my mind to explore and observe myself in my body. And then over time, I I have better awareness of myself and I can then use that to redirect my mind and my body. Okay. I want to chime in here really quick. Yeah. Are we saying that when, let's see, I'm going to give a, a tangible example. I'm just going to throw myself on the, on the, on the chopping block. One of the <laughs> behaviors that I've, it's the easiest way to do it. Right. So I just, I have a real thing about like wanting to, to make things as real as possible because it's just easier to connect to a story. One yeah. of the things that I'm very, very familiar with was one of my habits for most of my life was uh, just it's, I wouldn't say it's like incredibly severe, but it has been, uh, it has persevered through most of my life, which has been porn and masturbation addiction. I'm consciously aware of a lot of the uh, potentially harmful effects that it has on the brain and, and gray matter mm-hmm. and the, the structuring of what it's doing to the brain up there. However, sometimes when you're in that trance, it happens afterwards. It's like, here I am. Now I think mm-hmm. I've gotten beyond the spot where I, I really beat myself up. Cause I went through that. I was like, I'm a fucking bad person. I'll never be worthy mm-hmm. as a lover. I will never truly, a uh, be able to experience pleasure in my own body devoid of having some kind of screen in front of me. Like I've been through that. I've been in some deep, 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 dark places and using as a way to numb and, and cope with life. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't say it's as grained, but even walking through that bit for me, step one was just don't make yourself fucking wrong. But then it became, well, I'm making myself right. It's okay. So like, it's funny how like in a weird way, the Mm -hmm. thing kind of like flips itself. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. if I'm now developing the awareness that it's happening, it sounds like you were saying that step one is develop emotional awareness. So let's just say in that instance, it comes up. The thing for me to do is as I notice it coming is just taking, maybe even it's a commitment to just taking one conscious breath and being like, how do I feel like, right? Totally. Right. Here I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as time goes on, as time goes on, you get better at it. So say you start the practice of emotional awareness in any moment, you try to figure out mm-hmm. how you feel then. And it's not a perfect, you know, you're still going to engage in these behaviors, but then you have more data so that when the behavior happens, you can say, Oh, well, what was I feeling like immediately beforehand? And then you start to, you notice the patterns and you're like, mm. ah, okay. So usually when I'm feeling this way, that's when I want to do this. Okay, cool. 
what, and then you can think of like productive solutions. So, uh, well, first of all, what you said before was like making it good or bad. It's a, it's a slippery slope. You don't want to, you don't want to not make it bad and then say that it make it good by not making it bad. The key is to make it neutral so that you can, you can redirect what you know is good for you without assigning some kind of ethical code to it. Um, cause that's a whole other mm-hmm. thing, but, um, but yeah, I think it, it is really like a gradual thing. Like, uh, you know, after you start the emotional awareness, you're going to more, you're going to notice in retrospect, you're still going to go into the pattern, but you're going to be able to say, okay, the last four times I did this, I was feeling a very similar emotion beforehand. Cool. I'm going to file that away. I have that data. And then maybe the next few times you catch yourself like in the middle of the behavior and then you're just aware of it while it's happening. Right. And then either you can redirect yeah. it or, or whatever. And then as time goes on, you can start to sort of reframe but yeah i do think like there is some level of like anchoring more productive behaviors in so like if we can anchor our emotional addictions to behaviors that don't serve us well we can anchor them to behaviors that do serve us as well and that's what we call building good habits that's a good habit right so maybe you could find something more productive you could you know slow yourself down take a deep breath then also ask yourself like are there other things that i can do to help me like feel what I want to feel from this instead. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that's, that's just something that like happens over time. So beating yourself up about like, Oh, I'm observing it in retrospect, but I still got caught in the cycle this time. It's like, cool. That's okay. Like, you know, you, this is, this has been something that you built into your DNA or not DNA, but you built into your, your body's memory system for years and years and years and years. You're not going to eradicate it, you know, in two weeks. Oh, for real? You're telling me there's no quick pill, fix it all, and I oh, can just no. <laughs> shove this little pill no, up no. my rectum and give it a, give it 24 hours and I'm going to feel better? <laughs> Wish I could tell you that. Yeah, pharmaceuticals would love if that was the case. Look, all you got to do is once a day for the rest of your life to shove this pill up your butt. All your problems go away. I'm surprised they haven't marketed that yet. It would be a real, it would be, it would make almost more money. It would make almost more money than what they have been marketing. marketing. There would be a whole audience of people who'd be like, oh, now you're really speaking my language. I wasn't sure how I felt about pharmaceuticals before, but now you're telling me it's I'm okay with it. Every single problem gone? I mean, sign me up. Gone? (laughs) Does insurance cover How big is this pill? How big is this pill? Is it like like big? As big as your problems. Infinity. <laughs> Shit, you gonna fit that on there? That is the one catch. That's the one catch. I'm about to grind it up and shoot it. I don't know. Like dissolve it in water and just. It's gonna be. It's gonna be powder form. It's oh, gonna liquid. be a, like it's like osmosis. Just a pill <laughs> enema. Pill. Ooh, that sounds painful. Yeah, pill but en- it depends on depends on how big you. You see what people walking out at the pharmacy with like these huge like. Like one guy got like a small, like, damn, he ain't got that many problems. Like everybody's just like showing you how many problems they got. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is like the third time he's been in and out. Yeah. Yeah. This bitch has like a backpack. Like, oh, that bitch got problems. (laughs) She got, she got problems, man. I don't even want to know how she's going to get that. You might just want to take an ice bath, girl. That's a big It's easier to just do what we're talking about. Yeah. You have to take a. That's, Insurance is not going to cover that one. <laughs> not at all. That's going to be your deductible. Nothing. You have to pay off your whole damn deductible right up front. <laughs> Shit. And that's if you can even you know uh, dispense. What's the word for the application of said medicine? Can you um, apply? Can you get it up your asshole? 
Can, that's exactly in the instructions. Can you get this up your ass? <laughs> if you answered it. no, then come listen to this podcast and it'll talk to you about nervous system rewiring and, and how you can yeah. just do it, you know, a little you more. You want to do it the organic way, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Oh. Sometimes you gotta go there. Literally and metaphorically. Sometimes you do. But only sometimes. Uh, okay. So bringing it back for a moment so there's this there's this common underlying thread in what we're saying about being able to get back to the present moment i got your bit about the uh being able to get data from our experience and it seems like the the first step is the awareness the second part is being able to remove the the negative feeling and emotions that we are attaching to the experience and once we've gotten it a bit more neutral we can start to look at the behavior and not that we're going to shove something on our butt and fix it, but that all of a sudden we start to, we start to gather the, the data from our experience and progressively we do a little bit better. We, mm-hmm. we collect more data. We, we start to analyze the feeling, the emotion, we've neutralized it. And then we start to add more uh, adaptive behaviors, if you will, behaviors that are moving us in the direction of something that's a more um, positive expression of that thing. That's something I've, I've learned with uh, multiple habits of mine, whether it's, adding or building new habits, good to have, you know, serving habits versus removing or taking away certain habits. It's uh, one, being able to put as much of a gap between you and that thing as possible, meaning you really have to overcome something to want to engage in that behavior. Mm. I.e., for example, for mm. me, one thing that I started playing with because like porn, for example, is it's just like you get in that loop install porn blocker and and add it to all your things and if you want to try to get past it you have to wait for a 30 minute timer so there's this massive gap before you can even engage in that behavior again maybe not as easy for somebody who's like wants to go and raid their pantry and there's no lock on their pantry unless you're gonna go buy a lock and put on your pantry and you gotta like phone a friend to get them to send you a a text number so you can like open your pantry get into all your food but Mm -hmm. it's it's finding ways that we can uh we can put a space between us and that behavior before we yeah, engage and I mean, I think in it, indulge in it once more. 100%. And I think the key is to come at it from both ends, right? Because you got plenty of people who are like, oh man, I binge too much. So I'm just not going to keep it in the house. I'm not going to keep it in the house. But then like they're ignoring the root of the issue and they're not actually solving the problem. They're just denying themselves okay. the ability. So it's, it, but that you need that in order to start the process. But you might call this like inducing withdrawal. Like if you're in drug rehab, like you basically are going through induced withdrawal. They, they deprive you of said drug and your body goes through this process whereby it's become withdrawn. But if you only do that for two weeks and then you go back into living your life, you're probably going to become addicted to the drug again because whatever the emotional issue was, hasn't been resolved. So your body has gone through this, you know, I want to kick and scream, you know, I don't have any food in my pantry, but I want to binge right now. And you want to fucking drive to the store and kick and scream, or, you know, you have the blocker on your computer, but you, and you want to kick and scream because you're in this like emotional chemical withdrawal state. And then you get over the hump but if you don't also do the work to work on the part that's causing it, the roots, it could just come back. So I think, it, you know, it is important to go at it from both, from both sides. Okay. I want to, because we've been talking about food and binge eating, and I think we started to scratch the surface with it. I, I want to kind of segue this into the conversation around um, 
in general, recovering from eating disorders and body <laughs> dysmorphia and this whole conversation now, you started to touch on it a little bit, but as much as you're willing to go there, I'd love to, to kind of get a deeper dive into that story and your journey. And yeah. I think now it seems like it's a part of your mission in some way to to support people. Because it's like, I imagine it's like what the work and the conversation around emotions and, and understanding our physiology is intimately connected with this, uh, this conversation on body dysmorphia and eating totally. disorders. Uh, yeah. What has your journey been like there? Yeah. I mean, I try to keep it concise cause there's so many interacting pieces, but, um, in college, I was a serious ballet dancer. I was also studying biological anthropology. So I was studying the human brain evolution. And also during this time I began struggling with eating disorder, which at the time had been diagnosed as anorexia. But, uh, I think that was a terrible diagnosis there's they they have since gotten better about how they describe things but um because of that diagnosis I was approached like a page in a textbook it felt like the whole like recovery process like there were so many problems with the way that it was and there's so many misunderstandings and there's so many places that I I'm stubborn as hell I wanted to get better but I needed to know why I needed to know the physiology of my body. I didn't need someone to tell me I was beautiful anyway, and that I should eat. I needed to know how is my body, you know, nutritionally working with food. How is my mind working? Um, and that's when I, when I was kind of starting to recover. I also I, it was more of a orthorexia and uh, compulsive exercise. So I would exercise hours and hours and hours a day. Um, I wouldn't eat certain foods, and I wouldn't eat enough. So I was about 85 pounds, which, you know, for perspective, I'm like 140 now, which is lighter than I've been in a while. And, um, so I was teeny and, um, my brain just, my brain just left for a moment. But, uh, yeah, but I remember as I was going through this process of, okay, I know I want to get better. I'm also really scared to get better and I need to change my habits to get better. Um, there was this one specific memory I have of standing in front of the mirror in my dorm room, that awful fluorescent college dorm lighting, just the, and being like, I look like I'm going to die. Like I look sick, like being able to recognize, okay, I have body dysmorphia. It's more about how I feel. There's a lot of misunderstandings about body dysmorphia. I don't actually see myself as fat. Like I know I look sick, um, but I'm still going to wake up tomorrow morning and run 10 miles because I don't know how to not I can't not, I have to. And that's when I started thinking, this is addiction. Like this is, and I started asking the question, how is it that I can know what I want? I can know exactly what I need to do to get what I want. And I still don't do it. And I realized hmm. that no matter, no matter who you are and the magnitude quote of your problems, that's what we're all fucking wondering. Why can't I get myself to do what I know I need to do to get what I want? Like, shouldn't the things that we want and desire the most be the easiest to follow through with? Like, theoretically, you would think that that were the case. So as I'm studying this brain evolution stuff and, and just figuring more, I start asking this question. I start getting interested in addiction. Um, but I am at this time more focused on physical recovery. So by the time I was graduating college, I had gained like 30 pounds of muscle. I had transitioned from ballet because it kicked me out into the gym, started learning about lifting weights and doing all that. And as soon as I graduated, I became certified personal trainer. I worked at a gym for about a year. They fired me. 
because I was just too good for that place. <laughs> and um, then I started my own business. So humble. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, to be honest, it was just like a... It was such a power trip. They didn't want to pay. Like, they had so much seniority bullshit. They didn't want to, like, pay me um, okay. as much as they paid other people. And I started, like, you know, basically telling them how I felt about it. And they were like, you got to go. I was like, yeah, I do. Um, and I started my own business, made a lot more than I ever made at the gym. And, um, that was, uh, 2018 Does started my shoulders. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I started in 2018 online fitness training business and then got really successful. I was doing that for a year or two. I mean, I've done it, you know, all the way through, but I've taken a few breaks here and there to, um, to dive more into what I talked about previously, which was, okay, now that I'm working with clients, I'm running into the same thing. And it's, it's, it's the question about procrastination. It's the question about yo-yoing. It's the question about self-sabotage. It's the question about how do we discipline? It's the question about, I know what I want and I can't do it. And why is it that at least 25% of the clients I have, they have the perfect guidance. They have the perfect approach and they just can't seem to get themselves to do it. And I started noticing that this is really sticky and that the only thing that really separates a bad habit or habit change from addiction is the magnitude, right? We have a certain scale upon which we define something either as life-threatening or not. And if it's life-threatening, we call it an addiction. And if it's not life-threatening, if it's just based on preference, we call it a bad habit or a pattern, right? But then I started questioning, well, what's the difference between life-threatening and life-threatening in quotes, right? Because I had been through a period where my physical life was threatened, but I felt worse. Uh, I, I would, I would rather, it sounds awful, but I would rather have lost my life than live my life in a way that was quote life threatening because I wasn't living it the way I wanted to. So I was like, well, this is still important because there's so many people not living their lives the way they want to. And that's just as good as nothing. Mm. You know, so I started asking those questions and then I started to, as I started to study science, I, this is when I got also into more self-development, reading the secret, realizing, you know, reading a lot of Joe Dispenza, you know, manifestation was blowing up on social media and time and time again, I would read a post about manifestation. I would read a post about habit change, about discipline and fitness. And I was like, every single person is regurgitating the same shit and they're all missing the mark. They're all missing the mark because all of this doesn't address the physiology of how this actually works. If your discipline is continuously like, you just need accountability. You just need to get off your ass. You just need to go against the grain. I'm going to use my ego to market myself by saying, I've been through more pain than you. And the only way to do this is to cause yourself pain. When like the longer you cause yourself pain, the more road rash you create. And then you stop and you start and you stop and you start. And like, no matter what people are preaching, these coaches aren't helping people long-term because they don't even know how it works. Right. So that's when I started getting really interested in like, okay, I want to study addiction. And at the time I was still recovering from binge eating issues. So I read this book called brain over binge by Catherine Hansen. And it's based off of this book called radical recovery. The concept is, uh, originally about alcohol addiction. She takes it and she applies it to food. And I, I just remember I took, I read that book and then I, I would look, and then I looked in the references of that book. And I, I read those books and I looked at the references of those books and I read those books and I had sort of taken a break from fitness coaching because I was feeling really out of integrity and misaligned with this whole, like, how am I going to help people if this is just like, 
it feels like I'm just like, people are hiring me because I look really good and I'm giving them fitness and just says that this feels achy. Like this isn't the point. This isn't, I'm not, you know, and I was helping people, but I had this growing resentment for like the industry that I couldn't yeah. uh, get, get past. Um, so I spent time, you know, studying a lot during that. And then this is when I built Shift, which is an online course I still have, which kind of demystifies the manifestation piece in terms of physiology, quantum physics, all that stuff takes you into human brain evolution, the unconscious conscious incongruency. How is that the same thing as quote, the law of attraction? And then how do you actually change your habits, weekly assignments for, you know, recognizing your emotional patterns and stuff like that. So what have I taken from my study on like addiction and, and related this like spiritual manifestation habit change to the physiology to like, just put it all together. Right. Like in a way that is like, here's what no one on social media is saying because they don't fucking get it. They just want to sell you something. Like, let me show you what I've studied. And the cool thing is the course has like 50 book sources in it. Like there's all this stuff. And I'm just like such a geek. I geek out over this shit. I love it. I got to like take my own course again. But so I got really interested in that. And then like two years after that, which is about a year and a half ago, I find I find NLP. Uh, and I, I realized, ah, there's a group of people that study this. They study the unconscious mind. Like NLP was really similar to the online course that I built. But just from a slightly different perspective and with more tools that I could apply with clients. So I become a master practitioner in that. It, become, it takes about a year. So I became one this past July. And I have all these tools now. I also got certified in uh, some branches of timeline therapy for trauma work, hypnosis, all these other you know nervous system regulatory techniques. Um, and NLP has this wrap of being for like sales and manipulation and but at its roots, at its core, it is a study of the unconscious mind, which is one of the most empowering pieces we have to help ourselves if we can use it for the right, you know, things. So now I'm in this place of over the last two years or so, like recombining the mental, emotional work with the physical work after, after doing fitness coaching and then doing the other coaching, I still do both separately, but putting them together and realizing there's a lot to be done in this union, right? In fact, they never were separate. It's not a, it's not at odds to help somebody aesthetically work on their bodies and then also work on the emotions that are the reason they want to do that. Like, let's get clear on making sure this is coming from the right place, right? Um, so that's how Mind Body Breakthrough was born. And Mind Body Breakthrough just combines all of that. Um, I have in the past... For about six months, I focused on people with history of eating disorder or like binging slash whatever problems. Um, and I have considered like niching on that. For now, I'm not really too niched, but I do see a place in the future for in some way, like I'm starting to um, book calls with people who are working in the industry uh, of like eating disorder recovery. Because my personal experience, part of why I studied all of this was that when I was recovering, I didn't feel like anyone got the point. They were like, it was the same discipline and forcefulness that you get from going to the gym and just making it happen. Right. It was just eat this, just eat this, just gain weight. And there, and there was emotional support and there was therapy, but it wasn't educational. It was, how do you feel? It felt very, um, pity. Like I felt like I was pitied and I didn't want to feel pitied because I felt like I was in control. I felt like I had self-awareness. I felt like they didn't think they could trust me because they thought I wasn't self-aware. And it was so hard for me to try to scream 
from this soundproof box. I'm self-aware. I know what I'm doing. I just don't know how to stop. So stop treating me like a six-year-old and help me understand the science of this. How is it I have a psychologist who's an eating disorder specialist who can't help me understand the physiology of addiction, right? She just talks to me. She just says, how do you feel? Like, I don't want to talk about how I feel. I want to know where those feelings are coming from. I want you to tell me, like, even um, on a basic level, the, the physiological markers of weight restoration, night sweats, like Lanugo, you have extra hair when your body needs to, uh, when you're very thin. And I had to Google all that myself. Nobody ever taught me shit about what you're going to experience when you recover from an eating disorder. So I want, I want that to be something that people know about. And, and back to this whole conversation, that comes to educating the general public on the physical, tangible roots of trauma. Okay, we get that you're addicted to the substance. We get that you're addicted to exercise. We get that on some level, we have to use a little bit of discipline to stop ourselves. But why is it existing in the first place? Because I worked with so many people who've had a history of eating disorder, and now they're overweight. And, it, and because they were told after they recovered, oh, it's a slippery slope. Don't focus too much on fitness or food ever again in your life. It's not healthy for you to have aesthetic goals. Like, we think someone who used to have an eating disorder can't want to change their body. What if we could find a way for them to do that from a healthy place? What if it wasn't a slippery slope because they actually healed mentally, emotionally? That's the piece that I want to change in the future. And I don't know exactly how it's going to look yet, but uh, for now, I'm just coaching, not super niche down. But in the future, I'm, I'm just kind of letting the ideas flow. I'm having conversations with people. I'm, you know, do I need to become a licensed therapist? Like, what do I need to do to get into that world so I can change it? Hmm. And you look in, you're looking into the container that you were put inside of when you mm -hmm. were going through it and you yeah. were battling your mm -hmm. own yeah. body dysmorphia and they, you know, labeled as, um, anorexia, like whatever the labelings were, you were yeah. provided what was, what would be called like tools and resources. And you didn't feel like you were resourced with those resources, which is kind of a fascinating thing. So it sounds like yeah. that for you, there's, there's a gap between there's a, there's a gap in really for people's understanding and becoming their own healers. That's one thing that I, I heard is that in terms of like levels of like healing is like level one is you are the, he you claim as yourself as the healer. You're the one who heals people. Level two is you just help people realize that they're, they're they are their own healers that they yes. can heal themselves. Let me give you the tools, the tips, the information, the practices, the rituals. Let me be a mirror for you in any of the ways that it can support your journey. And then eventually mm -hmm. we realize that there's nothing actually wrong with us. We're not broken. We just, we all have our, our things and experiences that we've been through in life. And a lot of it is just, uh, yes. <laughs> coming back to the, one of the original threads of this conversation is coming back to the present moment. Go have your goals, your ambitions, your, your things that you, you set out to do, but also don't forget to come back home and uh, mm. spend time with yourself and integrate and not live life on yeah. autopilot, but fully integrated in this moment. Yeah. You know, and I don't mean to discredit the help I received, you know, but I, and people ask me all the time, they're like, well, what recovery did you ever go to inpatient? Did you ever, I went to an outpatient program for two weeks, went to another outpatient program for two weeks. I went, it was also at this time, like, you know, I was adult. My parents couldn't, I wasn't 16. I was an adult. So, um, I'm stubborn as hell. 
And I knew like what didn't work yeah. for me it was like, look, I know I still have problems with food and exercise, but like, I'm in this group of people. We're eating breakfast all together. People are struggling to eat their breakfast. I'm just like downing my oatmeal. Like, I don't think this is like helping me at all. Like, I don't think this is like what I need, like, because I was already educating <laughs> myself on fitness. And so, and then I never had, I never had a consistent therapist for more than a few weeks because it just like felt like I was paying them to just like ask me how I felt. So I don't mean to be like egoic and annoying when I say like, I healed myself out of my own stubbornness, but it does feel like looking back, I sh I'm glad that I did. And I'm happy that I did, but I should not have had to seek out on my own, the education that I did in order to heal that should have been available to me. Mm. And that's why like my journey of seeking it out makes me want to make it available to other people. It should be something that is explained to you in scientific terms. One thing I know about people with eating disorders, because I know myself and I know that I've worked with them, they're very stubborn. They want to be in control and they want to know why. They're some of the most logical, powerfully minded people. Some of the most smart people for that reason as well, if they can apply it. They want to know what's going on behind. If they can learn about their bodies, that is one yeah. of the best ways for them to heal. Because this is an emotional pattern. It's an addiction. But the way it's applied being, you know, this emotional problem could have manifested in drugs or alcohol or eating disorder, right? The way it's applied is in part due to a lack of education on our physical bodies. So let's educate, right? Not just with eating disorders, but with, with everything. And before we even got on this call and started to actually uh, begin wrapping this up, kind of like connecting the pieces, it sounds like underneath all of this, whether it's talking about the bridge between spirituality and science, whether we're talking about eating disorders and, and body dysmorphia, if we're talking about uh, how we begin to understand our physiology in a way that we can empower ourselves and really be an advocate and an ally in our own journey versus being dependent upon other people. It starts with learning. It starts with yes. educating. It starts with giving a massive fuck about your own being and taking responsibility and ownership for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that brings a, a really interesting point too, is like we say there is no uh, like knowledge without application is nothing, right? You can learn plenty of shit. But you're not going to apply it. It's nothing. That's why there's, self-development online courses and I'm going to put my head down and do it. But if you're never going to use it, then you're just staying in one place. But yeah. I think a, a part of the problem as I see it with traditional therapy or even the medical system is that we have application without education. It's the other way around. We tell people what to do. We do it for them. We tell them what they need, but we don't tell them why. Show and a huge part fish. of that. Yeah. A huge part of that is that we're selling something, right? So it's all like this, but you know, even like therapy, I mean, not hating on therapy. I think it's amazing. Everyone should do it. But traditional talk therapy is application without education. You don't get taught about your psychology. You just talk about it. But I think we need both. You shouldn't have to have a psychology degree to mm. know how your brain, your brain works. You're walking around with one every day. You should be entitled to that information. Yeah. At least at a fundamental level. Yeah, totally. And then, you you know, there's a whole conversation about the education system, too. But we won't. Not today. <laughs> That's a whole other <laughs> conversation for a whole other time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So where can 
people, where is it best for people to connect with you at? And all this will be in the show notes, but where's the best place for people to connect with you at? Yeah. Uh, currently, uh, Facebook or Instagram or my email, I guess, but, uh, usually Facebook or Instagram is fine. Um, Facebook, Megan Robitaille, which probably will be spelled in the title somewhere. And Instagram is Meg underscore mm-hmm. on fire. <laughs> and then email in, is Megan W gmail.com. You can always shoot me there too. Um, but yeah, Facebook and Instagram remain probably the best places to DM because I currently have a Mexican phone number. So, uh, most people don't know it until their clients and they're on WhatsApp <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Beautiful. And bringing this all together, what is one thing that someone could do, one action thing they can take away from this, one thing that they can take away to start learning and educating themselves in a way that they can understand their physiology, they can understand their mind, their body, their emotions, mm-hmm. and be able to create a more harmonious relationship with themselves and just be at peace with, with this moment? What's one thing that they can do? Hmm. What's coming up for me now because I think we like to say, what's the first thing we should do? And we go straight to doing that thing rather than have a cleared space for that mm-hmm. at all. I think the first thing is you need to acknowledge, like whether it's your schedule, the time you have, whether it's the energy you have, whether it's the commitments that you're willing to put energy into. You have to clear space first mm. for that. So if you want to self-educate more, it, you know whether it's I want to spend time on this online course, or I want to read this book, or I want to meditate. I want to, you know, physically embody those practices and practice on myself. I want to be more emotionally aware, whatever it is, what you really need to start with is, do you have a couple minutes a day that are just for you? Cause if you don't have that, you're going to mm. wonder why, Oh, I've had a book list for three years and I've never read it. I keep buying online courses and I'm not doing them. I have all these tools I'm not using. I have all these tools I'm not using because that's the second step. The first step is, all right, I have all this shit. What's on my plate that is less important than this thing that I want to do and make space for it. Whether it's 15 minutes in the morning, I say start small, like beginner morning routine, three minutes every morning, three minutes every night, one minute, list three gratitudes, one minute, list three intentions, one minute, sit in silence and just connect to your heart space, right? No excuse we live in a world where quick oats exist and they take a minute and a half to cook and regular oats take three minutes to cook. I get it. A whole product is it, it exists because you save a minute and a half. Frankly, I don't get it. Right. But in my opinion, there's no purpose to ever buy quick oats. And for the same reason, you should always have three extra minutes in the morning. And if you don't wake up three minutes earlier, but, but start with that space. And then instead of trying to say, I'm going to start with an hour, Start with three minutes and let it get bigger naturally. Let it get bigger Mm. because it feels good. Mm -hmm. Let it get bigger because you lose yourself in it, not because you're trying to force it to happen. Then you'll realize, huh, Mm. I'm just doing it. Mm. They have to start small. Yeah. Then you can use it for whatever you want. Start with what we got. Mm. Yeah. And if you want the educational piece, shift online course shift online courses the shit it's in the link in my bios everywhere you can also dm me if you're if you're curious about it and all the places people you heard it first you heard it live here Mm -hmm. on the fall the wolf podcast megan thank you for for playing with me from from mexico it's been an absolute pleasure uh having you on the show 
it's been so fun. Thanks. I'm glad Beautiful. that it all Into like, it's perfect. Oh. It all lined up. It always lines up. As soon as we get out of our own way, it all lines up. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for being here. And everyone who's listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Please, please, please make it a point to to check out Megan. She's dropping a lot of incredible knowledge. Obviously, you got to hear a little bit of it now. But as always, uh, continue to find, follow, live your truth, and follow the wolf within you. How? Peace. Amazing.